You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 10th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Mr Speaker, a responsible government must prepare for a range of potential outcomes, including the possibility of no deal. Here in the UK, another week of strong and stable leadership. My guests Carol Walker and Geoffrey Howard will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the upcoming NATO summit and Donald Trump's meeting with Vladimir Putin. Will next week's editions of Midori House be in Russian? Is it possible that people are getting more agitated about Trump's latest Supreme Court pick because it was Trump who picked him? And how reliable are national football teams as representations of their nations? That's all coming up on Midori House house on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Carol Walker, political analyst, former BBC political correspondent, and Geoffrey Howard, lecturer in political theory at University College London. Welcome both. And we start by once again regarding the serene progress of the well-oiled machine known as Brexit. Prime Minister Theresa May has today had her first meeting with her abruptly remodelled cabinet following the flouncings of Brexit Secretary David Davis and Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, who were unwilling to countenance the Prime Minister's idea for enacting Brexit, not that either man has furnished any of his own. It is desperately difficult to imagine that May will miss the input of either Davis or Johnson, neither of whom, to put it charitably, have been meticulous in their attention to detail, but can she still command the loyalty of her party? Never mind the country. Um, Carol, I'm not sure. What I'm trying to figure out is whether this waiting for them to resign vindicates her failure to sack them uh, or actually suggests that really she could have and should have done this months ago? Well, I think they she didn't do so beforehand because, frankly, she was in too vulnerable and weaker position to do so. Um, but it has to be said that the manner of these resignations, particularly Boris Johnson's, has not done those two now former ministers any favours. I think... If they had, for example, last week when there was that crucial meeting with the entire cabinet called off to the prime minister's country residence checkers to try to thrash out this incredibly complex plan that she's put together, if they had at that point said, look, This simply won't fly. It leaves us too tied into the rules of the European Union. We can't stomach this. We're going to leave. Oh, and by the way, in order to try to force a different direction on Brexit, one or other of us is going to stand for the leadership and provide a different sense of direction, then I think they would have at least been uh, won some praise for standing by their principles. I think by waiting, by pouring over it for a weekend... David Davis then resigned late on Sunday night, having said that, having thought about it, he really didn't think this was a plan that he could sell. And only when he then got plaudits for taking at least something of a principled stand did Boris Johnson decide at the last minute, oh, just before the Prime Minister was due to get to her feet in the Commons, that perhaps he ought to go too. He has not done himself any favours. Even some of those very strongly pro-Brexit Conservative MPs are really angry with Boris Johnson because they think that he has, if anything, damaged their cause. Uh, Geoffrey... 
Carol characterises Theresa May as as vulnerable, which on paper appears the case, but she's in a strange paradoxical position, isn't she, in that her, her weakness has become kind of a strength, in that had she won the immense majority that she expected to win at the calamitous general election last year, uh, I think she'd be under much greater pressure to pursue a much harder Brexit. But as it is, um, she understands that she has to compromise, and she also is able to, well, she personifies the threat that if they remove her and there's another general election, then the Conservative Party might lose entirely. I think that's right. And when I saw the newspapers jumping to the conclusion that May's government is in turmoil, I wondered if they jumped to the, that conclusion a bit too quickly. It's not obvious at all that they're in, that her government's in turmoil. I agree with Carol entirely that even in Boris Johnson's letter, there was this, this dissonance between the declaration of conviction that the Chequers plan was doomed to fail, that the Chequers plan represented a betrayal of Brexit, and then this other idea that, well, okay, we had this common song sheet to sing from, and he tried practicing singing it over the weekend and the words got stuck in his throat. This is the metaphor he used uh, in the letter. Um, Not one of his better ones. No, indeed. And so it it, it strucks me that clearly had he genuinely been moved by moral and political conviction, he would have resigned before. And this was... It reeks of naked political calculation and a kind of political cowardice that I think only helps the Prime Minister. I I do think, though, that she is in a pretty rocky position. Let's not forget, she's not only lost two key ministers around her cabinet table. She has lost over the last uh, six or seven months around a third of her cabinet through various resignations. She has got a very large uh, collection of MPs in her party who are vowing that they are going to kill off her Brexit plan. Now, The thing that she has going for her is at the moment they want to kill off her plan. They don't want to kill off her leadership. But they feel that this arrangement that she came up with on Friday, which includes this phrase of a common rule book with the European Union, which everyone knows this rule book is going to be written by the EU. It's not going to be written by the UK. And that is absolute anathema to many of those who campaigned for Brexit. We've had a couple more resignations from the Conservative Party vice chairman. People like Ben Bradley, a very talented young Conservative MP uh, who was there to try to uh, garner some support amongst younger voters. Um, This hemorrhaging of support from her government does underline her weakness and she's still got to get this plan through the House of Commons where she could be defeated, which would be another crisis. Oh, and of course, she's got to persuade the rest of the European Union to buy it. And the signals we're getting so far is that they feel that it is exactly the sort of pick and mix approach that they're not going to buy. But just to follow that up, Carol, just quickly, is it not possible that the, and you're right, these are not the first resignations and they almost certainly won't be the last, but uh, Theresa May might at that this point be in that kind of slightly giddy, liberated, past-caring mode where you just think, well, the hell with them then. I mean, I, I, I don't imagine that she's going to be sort of grieving for the loss of Davis and Johnson. Might she now just be thinking, whatever? She will undoubtedly have looked round the cabinet table when they had their fir- the first meeting of her new lineup this morning and thought, well, at least I haven't got those two troublemakers, David Davis and Boris Johnson, to contend with. Apparently, every time Boris Johnson opened his mouth, usually to object to something she'd suggested, uh, Theresa May would turn on her icy stare. Um, so, uh, undoubtedly, there will be some 
relief in Downing Street that she doesn't have to contend with them in government. But the question now is what are people like uh, David Davis and Boris Johnson going to do outside government? People like Steve Baker, not particularly well known, but he was David Davis's number two in the Brexit department. He's a very influential figure at Westminster. And she has now got a large body of her own party who are prepared to vote against her plan. And if as they suggest the Labour Party also votes against it, then she could be defeated. And if that were to happen, then that would be another very, very serious crisis, yet another one, for her government. I mean, it's quite striking here that a lot of people have been saying, where's the opposition? Why isn't Labour speaking up? But I actually think Jeremy Corbyn's being quite shrewd to keep quiet and just let the... the Napoleonic dictum of don't interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake. Exactly right. (laughs) He's just letting the turmoil of of the Conservative Party be the main event that occupies the headlines, and he'd only diminish that by speaking out. Okay, well, let's move along slightly, because as if Theresa May didn't have enough to look forward to, US President Donald Trump is also due to arrive in the UK later this week. Uh, She will already have had the opportunity to manage his expectations about the warmth of the welcome he can expect from the British public. Both leaders are due to attend a NATO summit in Brussels starting tomorrow. Trump is not a fan of NATO. His pre-embarkation tweets have reprised his now familiar whine that the United States contributes too much to the alliance and other members too little. Um, Jeffrey, this is one of those things where I think it's instructive to examine the point, leaving aside the fact that it's Donald Trump who's making it. Is there somewhere in here a a kernel of truth that for quite a lot of the post-World War II period, uh, the rest of NATO has been taking a bit of a ride at the United States' expense? Well, I think it would be too strong to say they've been entirely free-riding. They have contributed. And so the only question is whether they've contributed enough. And granted, the states have made it a commitment to dedicate 2% of their GDP to defense. And they've made that commitment. And I think they should try to uphold that commitment. And of course, they face local domestic politics that make that difficult. So for example, there's not huge appetite in Germany um, for radically increasing um, the military budget. Nevertheless, Chancellor Merkel has made the pledge to try to increase it, not quite up to 2%, but getting somewhat closer to there. And so I think there's a good faith effort that's being made on the ground um, by some leaders to increase their NATO contribution. And how does the president respond to this? By trying to humiliate them over Twitter. So it would seem to be the exactly wrong tack, which suggests that Trump really isn't doing it um, because strategically he thinks it will help increase their contributions. He's doing it because it plays extremely well with his pace back home um, to say all sorts of nasty things about foreigners. Um, And because I think he genuinely um, doesn't know that much about world history and thinks that... um, the United States doesn't actually benefit from trying to preserve peace and security in Europe. He thinks that it'd be fine for Europe to just go to hell in a handbasket and he wouldn't have to worry about it because he probably doesn't know that much about Carol, World War II. He, he, he does keep trying to link uh, NATO with trade. Um, does that make any sense at all? Uh, clearly not. But Donald Trump <laughs> sees these things. As, uh, as Jeffrey was saying, he doesn't really like these big... Uh, multinational bodies. He likes to deal with individual strong leaders. Uh, And he also sees these things in a very transactional way. It's a kind of, well, what am I getting out of NATO? Since when did Estonia come to the uh, aid and help of the United States? Uh, He did welcome uh, the Western Balkan leaders uh, earlier this week. Uh, But clearly, as Jeffrey says, he's playing to his base at home. He sees this very much in that America first mindset. Uh, he doesn't feel he doesn't seem to 
have thought about why Germany does have historical reasons why it doesn't spend a huge amount on defence and why many in the population don't necessarily think that that's a good thing for for Germany to have as a priority. Uh, but also, I, I think that, that he doesn't seem to have understood that NATO is a very important alliance. He seems to think that he can go along and uh, meet President Putin on Monday. And in, indeed, it was interesting to hear him say today that he thought that was going to be the easiest of the meetings he had coming up as he swings through Europe. And he thinks that somehow he can just have a nice chat with President Putin and then the threat will go away. And hey, then I won't have to spend so much money on NATO. It is, as as Jeffrey says, a a rather simplistic approach to this whole issue, and one I think which doesn't really take full account of NATO's historic role in ensuring peace across a a large part of the world. It also doesn't take account of the fact that the primary purpose, arguably, of NATO is to fetter Russian aggression. So here he is trying to encourage people to give up more of their money um, for the project of resisting Russian aggression while at the same time acting in all sorts of ways contrary to that spirit. I mean, it it, it is, uh, Jeffrey, not entirely clear that Trump understands what NATO actually does, as you were pointing out. But because of that and because of his desire to play to his base and his always greater desire for further sensation and spectacle, is there genuine concern? It has been floated by some quite serious people, that he might pull some dramatic gesture, like if not necessarily flouncing out of NATO entire, then flouncing out of the summit. Yeah, so NATO is a a treaty obligation, so the president couldn't just take the United States out of NATO. The Senate would have to undo that treaty. But he could do other things. So he could decline to participate in future military exercises with NATO. He could decide to take various U.S. troops out of their bases in Germany. So there's all sorts of things he could do to weaken NATO short of pulling out. I think what's interesting, though, is that the NATO leadership are seriously worried about this. And I think what they're trying to do is to take this debate away from this idea of, well, who spends 2% and who doesn't and who's getting there, to a rather more rational, strategic look at what NATO needs, what it needs in terms of uh, military capacity, in terms of transport, aircraft, in terms of uh, cyber technology, and to say, look, what can these states bring to it? Because the 2% is a somewhat artificial uh, target and goal. We know that here in the UK, one of the few countries that does meet the 2% target, they've only managed to stick to that by adding in all sorts of different things, which are, for example, on military pensions and so on, to ensure that we're still spending the right amount. Uh, Greece, curiously enough, is one of the other countries which does meet that target. But again, most of the money goes on personnel, on pensions and military wages in terms of what Greece actually brings to the NATO alliance in terms of the kind of firepower and the technological capabilities. it's pretty small. So NATO leaders are trying to manage this hugely volatile American president arriving on the scene by saying, look, let's have a look at the military capability. Let's have a look at the strategic objectives and perhaps try to convince the American president uh, of the, the the wider benefits of NATO. So, uh, yeah, they've got quite a challenge on their hands. I mean, Jeffrey, you made the point that the, the primary purpose of NATO, certainly as it was constantly is to fetter Russia or what was the Soviet Union. Is there a concern, though, that if you're if you're watching this from the perspective of the Kremlin, you might start to think, well, if we are ever going to see how serious they really are, there's never going to be a time like the present. Is it 
is there a concern that Trump's sort of uh, shenanigans might tempt Vladimir Putin to send a few unmarked tanks uh, into the the eastern reaches of Estonia and, and Lithuania and, and see if anybody notices? I doubt it, at least at, certainly not this week. I mean, I think what what Putin doesn't want is for the traditional Republican foreign policy establishment to fire up its concern for NATO. And if the traditional Republican foreign policy establishment doesn't think there's any kind of impending threat, um, then it's not going to be making too much of a fuss. So I think Putin's probably going to lay low. Okay, we're going to take a short break now, or at least as soon as I've reminded everyone that the most recent edition of the Foreign Desk, available for download, is a consideration of what we would do without NATO and what we would have done if we'd never had it. Uh, Right now, you are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, Jeffrey Howard and Carol Walker. Coming up next, Trump's new Supreme Court pick. What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Mullister, with me are Carol Walker and Jeffrey Howard. U.S. President Donald Trump has announced his second nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, an opportunity presented to him by the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy. The new guy is Brett Kavanaugh, 53 years old, a District of Columbia appeals court judge and generally viewed as conservative. There is, depending on inclination, widespread concern or rejoicing that Kavanaugh's appointment could tilt the bench rightwards, Kennedy having been widely seen as as a balancing swing voter. Um, Carol, first of all, there is a, there's a kind of Trumpification, I think, of most uh, workaday political developments now. People get much more excited about uh, things that might have happened anyway if, if Trump did them. Isn't, isn't Kavanaugh just the kind of judge you might have expected a, a President Mitt Romney or a President John McCain to have nominated? Well, certainly in the United States, it has become the norm for American presidents to try to appoint the judges they want who fit their political views to the Supreme Court. Uh, Barack Obama did it, and as did a whole string of uh, American presidents beforehand. Uh, Of course, it's an idea that's... um, rather strange here in the UK, where the judiciary is very separate from the uh, political class and people would be uh, absolutely amazed if judges were uh, political appointees. Things happen very differently here. Um, But yes, what you're looking at here is a very right-wing judge with uh, very conservative views on issues like abortion. And President Trump has made it very clear that this is part of his whole agenda to ensure that uh, these issues are dealt with in by judges who are sympathetic to his viewpoint. And I think part of the reason that there is particular concern about this is that until quite recently, there were there were two that the Supreme Court was uh, pretty finely balanced. There were a couple of swing judges who were seen as broadly holding the middle ground, who could go one way or another. And now it seems that President Trump wants to entrench the Republican views on that Supreme Court. And given that this judge is relatively young, that is something that's going to be a lasting legacy. I mean. Jeffrey, what do you think? Is does does Brett Kavanaugh represent anything especially untowardly alarming? 
No, he's extremely orthodox, and he's exactly the kind of candidate that George W. Bush would have nominated or that a President Marco Rubio or Mitt Romney would have nominated. Um, there was even a, an op-ed by Akhil Amar, the former dean of Yale Law School, um, giving a, a liberal argument for Brett Kavanaugh. And it basically came down to the thought that Brett Kavanaugh was just a really smart guy who interpreted the Constitution as any orthodox conservative might, um, but in a way that, that law professors are bound to find very, very uh, pleasing and interesting because he clearly is a very smart man. Um, he's a quite young man, as Carol was putting out. He's I mean, 53 years old. is pretty young, given that people stay in the Supreme Court into their 80s or even their 90s. So he's going to exert a pretty lasting influence on the court. It'll be interesting to see whether he's like Justice Kennedy, the justice he's replacing, who was really a, a libertarian. So he sided with the right on issues like business and the role of money in politics, the notorious campaign finance decision in the U.S. Um, but he always sided with the liberals on social issues like abortion, like same-sex marriage. He was the author of a famous opinion, striking down a Texas statute that banned sodomy. So it'd be interesting to see whether um, Brett Kavanaugh, who clerked for Kennedy, will be in that same kind of libertarian mold or whether he'll be more socially conservative. He hasn't said anything especially um, indicative that he would try to reverse Roe v. Wade, which is the U.S. Supreme Court mm -hmm. case that upholds the, the legal right to abortion in the United States. He said he supports the principle of what's called stare decisis, the idea that you should uphold precedent. So it's totally possible that he wouldn't be part of a conservative um, majority to strike down Roe v. Wade, but he he might. And I think it's very clear in this case that you just don't know what a Supreme Court justice is going to be like until they actually start writing decisions. George H.W. Bush appointed David Souter to the court, thought he'd be a good, solid conservative, and he turned out to be a raving liberal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Carol, does it strike you uh, that Donald Trump for whatever reason, seems to take these Supreme Court nominations somewhat more seriously than cabinet appointees. He has appointed an extraordinary range of yahoos to uh, various cabinet roles. But as Jeffrey has been pointing out, whether you agree or disagree with the general political outlook of Brett Kavanaugh or his other nominee, uh, Neil Gorsuch, they're both clearly uh, serious and plausible candidates. Yeah, and he clearly sees these appointments as very important because... These judges do, after all, wield a huge amount of power in terms of the way the country runs and the way the country is going to be run in future. I think once again, it's also going back to this sense of him playing to his core supporters, his core vote. There's absolutely no doubt that he managed to woo some conservative Christian voters by saying to them, look, uh, we're going to make sure that uh, the rules, uh, that we have the right judges in place to ensure that uh, the rules don't fly in the face of the views of people like you. He sees this as, as part of his way of running the United States. He wants people who think like him, whose approach to politics is the same as his. And he sees this as a way of uh, extending his power and his influence over the way America runs uh, in, a, in a way that is almost easier to do than trying to get some of the changes he'd like through the, the, the Senate and, and, and the House of Representatives. OK, well, finally tonight, a bit over half an hour from now, the first semi-final of the 2018 World Cup will kick off in St. Petersburg between France and Belgium. This World Cup presents a dilemma for the leaders of the team 
seems still contesting it, Russia not being a place you can just turn up in if one has any eye for optics. However, there are other ways of wringing political capital from sport, and French President Emmanuel Macron in particular is trying to float his country's team as a national ideal, stylish, high-achieving and unfussily multicultural. Um, Jeffrey, listeners with long memories, or listeners with 20-year-long memories, may recall that they that France tried to float this with their 1998, uh, victorious 1998 World Cup team, fabulous side, who won the World Cup on home soil, and were, again, a very multicultural team. They had many players of African, uh, and indeed North African, Algerian descent. Uh, that noticeably failed to cure all known ills where these things were concerned in France. Why will this be any different? Yeah, so I think this is probably <laughs> not going to be a panacea. Look, I mean, I think it's it's useful to sometimes invoke sports as a way of um, telling a story about the national identity, especially if it's a good, inclusive liberal story about national identity. But I think it can only be one part of a much larger narrative. And there's always a huge risk that it's going to backfire. I mean, politics is a mess these days. People watch sports <laughs> because they don't want to think about politics. And to insist that we use sports as an occasion to talk about politics some more, I think will test people's patience. But people do see football as, as role models. They, they do see them as some kind of embodiment of the national spirit. Uh, now, I don't think anyone thinks that uh, the lives of the French national team are representative of the lives of many people in, from multicultural backgrounds in France. Um, but I think it's not surprising that President Macron, who's a, a very artful politician, uh, will try to use this to say, well, look, um, people may think we treat ethnic minorities in this country pretty shabbily. And uh, in, a, in many ways, the, those cultural divisions are much deeper in places like France than they are even here in the UK. Um, but I think people will look to a team like that. And perhaps if the team is successful and if people applaud that that approach, then hopefully that can filter through to other layers of society. I mean, I, I like the idea because one of the reasons I like sport and I enjoy watching sport is that it is a pure meritocracy, a, well, as close to a pure meritocracy as I think one finds, in, in that you, you can either do this or you can't do it. You don't get a game for France because you went to the right school or because your dad knows somebody or you grew up in the right neighbourhood uh, or something like that. But um, does it work beyond sport is the trouble, Geoffrey? Is it, it, it can other things be made into anything kind of like the pure meritocracy that sport is? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think that's a great point, and I think one of the virtues of sports is that they um, showcase meritocracy in its purest form. And I think we like to talk a big game about meritocracy in the other spheres of society, knowing all the while that it's a bit of a ruse that everything is <laughs> largely determined by your zip code, by you know who your mom and dad were, and where their school went, what school you went to, and what your various political connections are. And the the mantra that you can be anything you want to be in life just as long as you try isn't quite true. It all depends on a, quite a bit of luck and a a lot of connections along the way. Um, and so I think that, yes, sports are valuable because they represent that ideal of meritocracy. And I think um, that can be part of a conversation, a bigger conversation that's used within schools. So I think that it's a mistake to think, oh, let's talk more about sports and that's going to do an effective job of presenting an attractive narrative about what France is about. But if it's a 
springboard for conversations in France, cl- French classrooms, right? Then it's going to be woven into a, a deeper conversation. And I think that's where it can potentially have some value. Uh, Carol, to, to look at a field which is much other than a pure mer- meritocracy, i.e. British politics, which is which is where we came in, Theresa May is potentially presented with something of a dilemma this week, isn't she? Should England win tomorrow night uh, and get to the World Cup final for the first time in 1966, should she go to Moscow? Well, that's a question that has been raised Theresa May has been saying very firmly, look, the England team are doing pretty well. They're doing amazingly by recent standards. Uh, She has made it clear that after the poisoning of the Skripals, she's pointed the finger of blame very firmly at Russia for that. And of course, we've since had another couple who were also infected by Novichok and one of those has died. She's made it very clear that no British uh, politicians, senior officials, royalty are going to go to the World Cup. And I think that it it would be a really very dangerous climb down if she were to change that now. But that nonetheless, it's no surprise that people are trying to seize on the amazing success of the England team. I should mention, they're in the other semi-final, just in case anybody <laughs> listening wasn't aware of that. Um, and, it, and it's interesting. We've seen um, parallels being drawn. Uh, people saying, well, look, hang on, Theresa May should be a bit more like Gareth Southgate, the uh, England manager who's won huge plaudits for the way he's handled the team. Uh, he kicked out a lot of the big... Egos, the highly paid superstar <laughs> footballers who've been around for a while, <laughs> brought in lots of young, talented guys who were there to try and get on and play the game and look where it's got them already to the semi-final. And like France, England's only won the World Cup once. That was back in 1968, even longer 66. ago than... 1966, thank you, sorry. Pedantic sports fan uh, Yeah, yeah, well, I, it was because I was thinking of France in 1998. <laughs> of course, you know, me and football statistics um, usually are so on the ball with those things. But politicians, of course, try to identify with the national team. And it's amazing the way this World Cup has really engaged the public here in England, in France and in many other countries. Just finally, before we go, one word from each of you. Who's going to win the World Cup, Carol? Obviously England. (laughs) Geoffrey? I'm American. We don't play soccer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sticking with my two quid on Belgium, which I put on weeks ago, and I think he's looking pretty good. Uh, That does bring us to the end of today's show. Geoffrey Howard and Carol Walker, thanks both for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Lubici Okamoto, and Paula Schultzer. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next, 1900 hours. It's the Culture Show with Robert Bound. I'm back with The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns tomorrow at 1800. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 